powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to friends, foes, and neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings because what you're about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show. Prepare yourself for pop culture, commentary, and interviews featuring no drama and no controversy guaranteed. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Productions Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Hello, everyone. Hello, Duvall Nation. Hi. Hello. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Please. Thank you. Hello, and happy July 4th, Duvall Nation. Welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. I am Derek, and we have an absolutely incredible episode for you today. But before I get started, I want to say to each and every one of you, if you have dogs, make sure to keep them inside tonight, as more dogs escape and get lost on the 4th of July than any other day of the year, okay? So, welcome to episode 65. That's right, folks. We have an absolutely epic episode for you today. And this one, folks, this has been an interview months in the making. This is one of those interviews that will be forever enshrined on the Mount Rushmore of the Derek Duvall Show. We have on the show highly decorated Marine Corps Vietnam hero turned military technical advisor to Hollywood. Plus, he's acted in some absolutely incredible roles. We have Captain Dale Dye on the show. This is one of the most in-depth episodes we have ever done, and we leave absolutely no stone unturned. This is also a lengthy episode, so let's just get right on into it. Duval Nation, please rise to your feet and welcome a truly legendary Marine. Coming to us from the Lone Star State, Texas, Captain Dale Dye. <laughs> Captain, welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. This is indeed quite truly an honor for me. How has the weather been out in Texas today? Uh, it's um, relatively warm and muggy uh, up in Texas today, but we're, uh, we're expecting uh, a little chillier weather in the next couple of days. I always start my interviews with the same question. That is, how has it been for you to navigate the COVID-19 pandemic? It, uh, in my particular case, it was uh, relatively tough because I was in the uh, UK uh, working on a made-for-TV project, and uh, it was a nine-month-long ordeal. And, and I think people were in a, uh, an unnecessary panic mode most of the time, and uh, it was uh, frustrating and, uh, and irritating, I guess. Every journey has a beginning, and yours starts in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. What was it like for you growing up there? I, I grew up in a, in a kind of a turbulent family uh, environment, uh, and so um, I was sort of shuttled between um, St. Louis, Missouri, uh, Cape Girardeau, Missouri, Benton, Missouri, Sykeston, Missouri, Southeast Missouri sort of uh, area, and it was rural. Um, you know, I was one of the kids that uh, finds himself lost in the forest all the time, hunting and fishing. And, uh, I enjoyed that, but, um, mm. felt a little bit like an orphan bouncing around from place to place occasionally. I have been lucky to have interviewed two World War II heroes on this show. One of them, the first man on Omaha beach in Normandy, the other who survived the sinking of the USS Indianapolis. Like me, I read that you spent a good portion of your youth listening to the stories of World War II veterans. Is that correct? Yeah, I did. Um, I used to follow my dad um, 
around to the bars he used to frequent, and uh, they were always full of uh, uh, returned uh, GIs, sailors, soldiers, Marines. Uh, and I used to just uh, be, you know, a fly on the wall. I would sit and listen to these great stories. And, uh, and uh, well, they were, they were obviously a recounting of a turbulent time in the veteran's life. But uh, right. in my case, they were, they were just uh, brilliant adventures. And, uh, and, and I could feel right at that point that somehow, some way, somewhere, I wanted to be part of something like that. How many military schools did you go to before joining the Marine Corps? Two, actually. Um, I started out very early at uh, St. Joseph's Military Academy in Chicago, Illinois, mm-hmm. uh, or the suburbs of Chicago, Illinois. Uh, I think that was mainly to, to get me out of the bad uh, home life <laughs> environment. And uh, I thrived. Um, and, and having thrived, uh, I wanted to continue it. And so I begged, borrowed, and, and pleaded uh, to continue uh, my education in high school uh, at a military academy. And I was lucky enough to get a break or two uh, because money was really, really tight. Uh, but I was able to get a break or two and, uh, and went to Missouri Military Academy in, in Mexico, Missouri. Before you joined the Marines, did you have any jobs? I had an absolute bunch of uh, jobs. At one point, I, I played bass in a rock and roll band. Uh, yeah, a little put together garage band, uh, but we couldn't get hired uh, very much. And mm-hmm. so I, I worked on some tugboats uh, going up and down the Mississippi River. Uh, I baled hay. Um, I sold uh, work clothes for a while and uh, anything just to, uh, you know, keep myself together. Because I had, I had in mind um, going to the United States Naval Academy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really, I really thought uh, that's that's uh, that was a dream I had. Unfortunately, uh, during my high school uh, years, I had played a lot more sports and and uh, chased a lot more girls than I had studied, <laughs> and so um, I ended up uh, failing the Naval Academy exam not once but twice. Um, and so I knew that was out, and uh, I was really at a loss. I really didn't know uh, what was going to happen, where I was going to go. Annapolis is incredibly hard to get into. No question about that. Well, it was in those days, for sure. I mean, it was, first of all, you had to have some sort of uh, political clout or connection or, or familial connection um, to, to even get nominated. And then you had to take the competitive exam. And, and that's where I fell through my butt right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just I couldn't handle the math and science. I mean, it was, I was brilliant in, in English language and, and reading and writing and that sort of thing. But Mm-hmm. The math just uh, escaped me. Uh, I, I could see words and letter, letters, but I couldn't see much in numbers. <laughs> in 1964, you enlisted in the United States Marine Corps. Where did you go to boot camp? I went to uh, San Diego, nice. uh, California, the Marine Corps Recruit Depot. Um, what, what happened essentially was I was pretty down on my luck. Uh, and this is where Cape Girardeau comes into it. And I was I was kind of looking around for someone and someone, somebody to feel sorry for me because I had failed these Naval Academy exams. And it was, you know, as, as amateur novelists say, it was one of those dark and stormy nights. And uh, I was wandering around the streets and, and I happened to pass the uh, U.S. Post Office. And, and hanging out in front of the U.S. Post Office was this big A sign. And it had this lantern-jawed, rock-hard Marine in a dress blue uniform. And there was just and he was pointing a finger, and there was just one word up over the top of it, and it said, ready, with a question mark. And I said, you know, by God, I think I am. So, so the next morning, 
uh, that was in early January, like the second day of January um, of 1964, I went and enlisted. And because I was uh, west of the Mississippi River, um, they sent me to the Marine Corps Recruit Depot at San Diego. <laughs> Your story is a hell of a lot more inspiring than mine. I was rear-ended by a Navy recruiter, and while we were waiting for the police to arrive, he talked me into joining the Navy. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's not an uncommon story from our era. You know, I was stationed in North Island Naval Air Station in San Diego, and when you were on a plane landing or taking off, you could see the Marine recruits uh, hitting the tarmac. You know? Oh, and you can count on us seeing you and, and wishing we were on that airplane. So with all the military school experience under your belt— did you have an easier time going through boot camp than most? Oh, yeah. It was. Uh, they, they quickly spotted me as a ringer. I mean, I knew all the close order drill, and I knew the manual of arms, and I could shoot. And so I was quickly kind of, you know, once once I got past the recruit assessment uh, period of, you know, is, is this guy a weakling? Uh, is this guy a dummy? And when the responses on both of those in my case came back, no. They took a look at me and, and saw the, the prior experience, and uh, and I I kind of jumped up in the ranks, in the recruit ranks, and uh, and began to help out others who didn't have that extensive background. And uh, and, and in all, um, boot camp was uh, not, a, not a terrible experience for me at all. In fact, I enjoyed it. Was it deployment to Vietnam straight out of boot camp, or did you have some stand-down time? Oh, no. I had quite a bit of stand-down time. I had to go to this the uh, School of Infantry. And, uh, at that point, I became a, um, I sort of weaseled my way into becoming an 81 millimeter mortarman. And so I was learning that trade and I was, I was beginning to uh, really sort of understand that the, the business of computing the fire control solution, uh, the firing solution for an indirect fire weapon like a mortar, it was really fascinating, and and I was I was getting into it, and uh, and so uh, off we went to uh, Okinawa. Uh, I joined a battalion, and off we went to Okinawa, and uh, and we uh, we floated down off the uh, uh, South China Sea. This was in uh, summer '65. Mm-hmm. Uh, we floated down off the uh, South China Sea, and uh, had had been told that we were going to make a landing in uh, in South Vietnam. Uh, which we did in August, but I was only there for about six months and and didn't engage in much uh, combat, mm-hmm. some patrolling and some uh, mortar fire, indirect fire, but uh, not much combat. And uh, and that was um, and then I, I Christmas came up. Christmas was '65, and I was uh, able to rotate home. So out of uh, out of Okinawa by Christmas of '65, I was home. And went to uh, Camp Pendleton and joined uh, an outfit of the First Marine Division, and we were, you know, just milling around. And that's that's where the the great uh, change of MOS or military occupational specialty came about, which was which was kind of interesting. On the way to Vietnam, as a young Marine, what goes through your mind when boots touch ground in enemy land? Well, I suppose. It's the it's the same thing that uh, went through um, anybody's mind who had landed on um, uh, Veracruz in the Mexican War or who had uh, uh, jumped out of the trenches in uh, Chateau Thierry or uh, the Meuse-Argonne in World War I or landed on um, Peleliu, Saipan, Iwo Jima um, during World War II. You just, you just never know. I mean, you, you, you prep yourself and you say, I've got to do this, I must do this, and... Uh, 
I must conquer any fear that I have, um, at least to the extent that I can do my duty, I can do what I need to do. Uh, and that's, you go in with all of that in mind. You, you do enough thinking about it to get that far. And then, of course, the first couple of rounds uh, come down range and it all goes away. And, uh, and you find yourself just trying to do what you were trained to do on a very minuscule level. Um, you don't have any big sweeping, big picture thoughts. You, you have thoughts about the guy on your left, the guy on your right. And what am I supposed to do in the next five meters and 15 seconds? And, uh, and that, that kind of occupies your time. And, and uh, I think if you, if you focus down there at that level, um, you can conquer a lot of the fears that, uh, that people carry in when they, when they set foot in enemy territory for the first time. My little brother was in the 10th Mountain in the U.S. Army, and he spent a lot of time in Korangal Valley in Afghanistan. He told me once, the first time you hear a round go past your head, it really sobers you up very quickly. Yeah. I, I wasn't, the first time one went by my head um, so quick that I heard a snap, and it was, I didn't realize what it was. I thought it was an insect or something. And uh, it was actually the round breaking the sound barrier right, right next to my ear. And it took me a while to figure it out. But once I did, uh, I got some fairly interesting chillbanes. So when you aren't working and you have time to sit around and are alone with your thoughts, do you think about Vietnam often? And do you keep up with any battle buddies? Oh, yeah. Um, I've got about a dozen, I guess, my outfit in the 1st Marine Division uh, that uh, are very close to me, um, and and I'm, I appear to be very close to them. And we we talk constantly, and it's it's interesting. There's a sort of a, sh- a sort of a shorthand. You can say two words, and he knows exactly where you're going or what you're talking about. And that's 50 years ago, but we haven't we haven't lost that. Uh, and I think it points to um, the the cement bond that really develops uh, between guys who've been in combat with each other and and uh, and who had to rely on each other and did rely on each other. It, you know, it doesn't mean that, you know, you, you fell in love and had a huge bromance. It just means that that relationship is solid and means something really, really special to you. I have friends of mine that did the college experience, and they are very close with their frat buddies and so forth, and that's great. But they don't understand the bond that is formed between people who took the military service route. It's the, you know, you watch my back, I watch yours mentality, and I feel that camaraderie is lost on the civilian population. Would you agree? Well, that's that's right. And and the reason is because it's so extraordinary and, and that 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 develops in a in a situation, in a closeness, in a, in a, a familial uh, situation that that very few uh, civilians who've not had the military experience uh, can understand it. There's a depth to it. And that relationship is then uh, cemented and bonded in extremis that is in in combat where you're you're you must rely on the guy behind uh, next to you and he must rely on you and you inherently understand that and you inherently are willing to serve and sacrifice uh to to preserve that relationship and and i think that's that's one of the things that makes it so special and it's one of the things i wish more and more people uh could experience or at least could understand mm-hmm. your actions in vietnam are pretty damn legendary and you were without a doubt heavily decorated do you remember your engagements pretty vividly well some of them i do certainly i remember um especially uh tet of 1968 
uh, and where I fought in the battle for Hue City um, with the 5th Marines. Uh, that was an extraordinary experience. Um, it was an experience that none of us were really quite ready for. Uh, we found ourselves fighting house to house, um, you know, and up to that time, many of us had never even uh, beyond muzzle flash in a, in a faraway tree line or, or in a rice paddy had we really seen the enemy. But when we got to Huey, um, it was close quarters all the way. You, you saw that guy. He, he looked in your eyeballs and you looked in his eyeballs and, and you tried to blow each other away. And it was brutal. It was brutal because none of us were really ready for a house to house or what they call mount now, uh, military operations and urban terrain. I've always thought that a better acronym for that, by the way, would be FISH, <laughs> F-I-S-H, or fighting in someone's house. Um, and, and when you're in that situation, the, the jeopardy is just tripled um, because you're not only uh, dodging shrapnel from high explosive and, uh, and bullets incoming uh, from enemy troops, but when you're in a built-up area, uh, grenades, mortars, rockets, the shrapnel effect is tripled um, because rocks that, that you know, if a, if a rocket, an RPG, rocket propelled grenade hits a, hits a building, it may blow a hole in the building, um, but it's that rock and shrapnel and, and uh, rock and cement and stuff that, that flies all over the area. That'll kill you just as easy as a, as a piece of metal shrapnel. Mm-hmm. And so we were learning, uh, we were getting chopped apart and we were learning the hard way uh, how to do it in Hue. And, and the thing about Hue that, that I think uh, j- just is cemented in my mind, not only, was, not only were there some very, very close encounters with the enemy, and that's scary to, just to start with, but um, I, think, I think what I saw there uh, during that experience was how, you know, I, I call him Rudy in the rear rank with a rusty rifle. You know, that little 18-year-old PFC um, <laughs> who, who really doesn't have a lot of experience and doesn't have a, a lot of motivation, but but he's rock solid and he's going to give you everything in the world. And I, I saw probably, I think in, in that particular campaign in the, in the battle for Hue City, I think I saw uh, the absolute best of mankind and the absolute worst of mankind. And I saw the full gamut of human emotions. Mm-hmm. And, and if you're a trained observer, like I am, um, those things really, really uh, etch in your memory and in your mind. And they've stayed with me forever. Uh, the point, the relevant point here, the germane point uh, to Huey was one of the first books I wrote was a thing called uh, Run Between the Raindrops. Um, which was based on uh, what, a, what a Navy hospital corpsman told me uh, when I was wounded. Uh, he just shook his head and he looked around him at this casualty clearing point and all the Marines that were chopped up and hit. And he said, damn, die, you know, trying to get through Way City is like trying to run through, run through the rain without getting wet. And I said, mm-hmm. yeah, there's a title of a book in there somewhere. And it, <laughs> it, it was. And, and the title of that book is Run Between the Raindrops. Wow, that's crazy but clever. I'll give you that. At what point did you decide to apply for an officer commission? Well, um, it was actually after Vietnam. Uh, I had advanced uh, fairly well, I guess, based on my combat record and my my uh, what I what I would guess or hope was uh, demonstrated leadership abilities. I had advanced to master sergeant, 
And we got a new commandant of the Marine Corps, uh, General Lou Wilson, a Medal of Honor uh, recipient from uh, from World War II. And, uh, and he decided that uh, the whole stigma, the whole business of, of Vietnam uh, needed to be broomed out. He said, we, we need to get back to basics. We need to start over. We need to take some of these guys who we had to accept in Vietnam that, that aren't really good-hearted Marines and aren't really motivated, and we need to broom them out. And to do that, we need good, solid uh, company-level leaders. And, and I want us to reach down in the ranks of our staff, non-commissioned officers, and find those leaders. And I was one of the ones he found. Uh, and I wasn't sure at all. Um, I didn't have a college degree. Um, so the standard OCS route was not open to me. And, and I wasn't sure at all, being an E8 at that point, one step down from the highest enlisted rank, uh, whether I wanted to fool around with being commissioned at all. But a, a group of officers, um, a couple of captains, a major and a, a brigadier general uh, called me in one day and said, listen, we know who you are, we know what you are, and we like it. And we, you need to be an officer. You need to lead on a larger scale and scope. And, uh, and I said, well, sir, I, and they, they just didn't want to hear it. They said, I think, I think you know what we're telling you there, uh, Master Sergeant Dye. <laughs> and I said, uh, yes, sir, I guess you're telling me I need to go to OCS, but I can't. And I started to complain about not having a college degree. And they said, and the way we're going to do this is you're going to become a warrant officer. So we're going to send you up nice. and expect you to become a warrant officer, uh, and we'll work it out from there. And that's that's what happened. So, so while I was uh, gratified and honored uh, that they were adamant that I should go to OCS, I was a little worried about it. And then uh, when they explained that I could be a warrant officer, um, and uh, and 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 sort of approach the officer community from that level. Uh, I got over it and went off to Quantico and uh, and was commissioned a uh, a warrant officer. How long did it take you to get your degree from the University of Maryland? Well, that that took about eight years. <laughs> wow. Uh, and and the reason was um, I wanted to convert my commission uh, from warrant to uh, a regular commission, um, and and I needed that college degree. So I started going to school uh, as as many of your veteran listeners have. Um, sort of at night and anytime I could find. And I think, I think I went to like five to six colleges um, it, wherever I was stationed and just transferred all my credits and everything. And, and finally, I, find a, I found a mentor while I was on Okinawa uh, at the University of Maryland. And uh, they had an extension on, uh, on Okinawa. And uh, the professor that I ran into was himself a former Marine and he'd fought in Korea. And he, uh, he, he got it, why I was doing this and what I needed to do. And he also spotted within me, uh, I think, a, a, sort of, a certain creative bent. And so um, he steered me toward a degree in English literature, um, which I studied for. And eventually, uh, eight years later, or, well, I guess I was in my sixth, seventh, and eighth year of study at that point on Okinawa. And, uh, and, and went in that direction and was able to get my degree. So upon becoming a full-fledged officer, do they start you at 01? No, I, uh, at that point, I was a chief warrant officer, selected for chief warrant officer three. And uh, I applied to convert my commission, and they uh, converted me directly to first lieutenant. 
after reaching the rank of captain, at what point in your life did you decide to retire from the Marine Corps? And what was the reasoning behind that decision? Well, that's an interesting story. I, frankly, uh, the Marine Corps had been so good to me. And I had enjoyed almost everything I'd done in the Marine Corps. Even the kind, even the bad times were good. Right. Um, that, uh, and and I really enjoyed leading, uh, helping to mold and shape young men and women was was probably the most gratifying thing I did, no matter where we were, or what we were doing. And uh, and and I decided uh, that you know, I, they'll I'll I'll leave the Marine Corps when they throw me out cold, dead, and and laying in a in a coffin somewhere. Um, and then uh, I was at the 2nd Marine Division at uh, Camp Lejeune, North Carolina in uh, 1982. The uh, defecation had hit the oscillation in uh, Beirut, Lebanon. And uh, they had formed uh, a multinational force uh, consisting of uh, uh, U.S. Marines, uh, the Italian uh, contingent of Italian soldiers from the San Marco Battalion, and uh, um, French uh, had a unit from the La Légion Étrangère there, and the mission was essentially to keep um, the the Israeli attacks on Lebanon, which were taking heavy civilian casualties and and causing massive havoc and and uh, just tearing up the the capital of Lebanon. Uh, they they were the the idea was to go in as a peacekeeping force and keep those two opposing sides, the PLO. Palestinian Liberation Organization and uh, under Yasser Arafat and uh, and uh, the uh, Israelis uh, off each other's backs until a peace sort of thing could be negotiated to save Beirut and save Lebanon and, and so on. So mm-hmm. um, we went uh, over there. Uh, I went in late uh, with the second unit to go in, the 24th Marine Amphibious Unit. And essentially, um, you know, we... We went along and, and things were beginning to escalate and we were trying to maintain a, a relatively uh, innocuous footprint. We were trying not to become on on either side, you know, not on the PLO side, not on the Israeli side, just in the middle. And that was absolutely impossible to do. And the longer I stayed, and I stayed quite a long time, I stayed about eight months. The longer I stayed, the more I became convinced that there was absolutely no way and we were getting shelled by uh, the Druze forces in the uh, in the Shuf Mountains overlooking Beirut International Airport, where we were based. And uh, and and I knew it was coming. And and I think everybody who was there knew uh, they're going to hit us. And we tried to we tried to do everything to convince. Uh, we had two chains of command, sort of a military command and a State Department uh, chain of command, and that's never going to work. But that's the situation we were in. And we were trying to convince everybody up and down that chain of command that we needed to um, we needed to essentially, you know, take care of our own security. We needed to get out patrolling deep uh, into those PLO uh, insurgent territories. We need to we needed to get outside the fence, outside our wire at BI at BIA, Beirut International Airport. And we needed to get up into the Shoof Mountains and we needed to take charge of our own security, because if we don't, we're sitting ducks. We're a target. And it's it started. We started getting hit more. We started getting rockets more. And at that point, um, I was, uh, this was mid-82, uh, I guess, uh, or the fall of 82. And uh, I, I was sent home. So I went back to Camp Lejeune. And not long after I got back, in October of, of 83, this was, 
they hit us uh, at the uh, Mao CP, the uh, Battalion Landing uh, Team CP, which was part of the headquarters complex at the Beirut International Airport. Suicide bombing, suicide truck, killed 241 of us. And, and that sort of uh, broke my spirit. It kind of broke my warrior's heart because I remembered, I remembered on the day I was commissioned, um, I, had, I had gotten up in the barracks and I was going to shave and, and get into my squared away uniform and go down and have my bars pinned on as a warrant officer. And on the morning, that morning, as I shaved, I looked myself in, in my BDS eyeballs and I said, uh, you know, um, this is a big step for you. Uh, you're you're going to be uh, a serious leader here, so you must you must make certain promises to yourself. I said to myself, when the day comes that that you can't look in the eyes of your Marines and say, "Follow me," it is necessary that we die. When when that day comes, you got to quit, because that means your warrior's heart, your warrior's spirit is is broken. And, uh, and that day came in October of, uh, of 1983. So uh, I, I really began to think about retiring uh, because I was afraid that my leadership had become tainted. My opinion had become tainted. My motivation had become tainted. And I didn't want that. I didn't want anybody to ever see that in me as long as I was in uniform. Mm-hmm. And so um, I waited for a while and, and milled around for a while. And, and they sent me to recruiting duty in New Orleans of all places. And, uh, and, and finally, I, I saw an opportunity and I said, you know, th- that's it. I've just got to go. And so in uh, April, May of 1984, I, uh, I retired. What is it like to have such a distinguished career in the Marines to the next day you're a plainclothes civilian? What is that transition like? Well, I'm, I guess I was like a lot of uh, lifers, if you will. Uh, there wasn't any uh, adjustment. You know, I, I came out a Marine and I stayed a Marine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, in my, in my view, the, the civilians were going to, were going to meld and mold to me, not the other way around. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course that, that only works in certain uh, remote and rare <laughs> instances, but I, I didn't have any big transition the biggest transition problem I had was what in the hell was I going to do with myself? Um, you know, what, what did I have that I could bring to the table that, uh, that, that might, you know, earn me a living to supplement my, my, uh, retirement pension. Um, but I didn't have any, you know, other than the fact that I had a little trouble with clothing, uh, I had worn a uniform so long that, you know, I, it would take me five minutes in the morning to decide what color of socks to wear because I'd never had to, I'd never had to contemplate that before. You know, they were either black or they were green. And, uh, now I was into this other business and, and, uh, so uh, the transition problems for me uh, were mental and metaphysical rather than uh, any, any big uh, fear or, or having trouble uh, adjusting to civilian life. Civilian life was what it was, and I was going to make it adjust to me. You know what's amazing? Every single person I know who left the service, regardless of the branch, first thing they do, grow a beard every single time. Never, Never happened. happened, and I'll tell you why. Because that would be me conforming to civilian society. And, and I wasn't going to do that. They were going to conform to me. If they all wanted to hit, wear beards and I didn't, then that's fine. That, that marks me as different. <laughs> nice. What led to the founding of Warriors, Inc.? Well, um, I was 
really sort of at a loss um, of, of what to do. And uh, I knew that I had a creative bent uh, that had been exercised. I'd written a book um, and I'd, I'd always been a movie fan. I think by the time I retired, I had seen every military movie there was. And, and one thing, the common denominator in that experience uh, was one that a lot of military people have had. You know, most of the movies I saw about the military just pissed me off. They, they didn't reflect who we were, uh, what we were about. And I, I sat down and contemplated that. And I said, what, why is that? I mean, I see names in the credits, you know, military technical advisor, Major General Arnold B. Omptifrats. And, and I said, well, what the hell was Major General Arnold B. Omptifrats doing when they made this mess? How come he let them do that? And I, and I couldn't figure that out. So, um, you know, I guess, I guess the, the answer here is that when, you, when you're ignorant, you can do a lot of things that people tell you you can't do. And I was certainly ignorant about the movie business, but, but I had this nagging feeling that there was a better way to do this. And in fact, if they stuck to what we really were, who we really are, and the stuff we really went through and how we went through it and how we related to each other, that that would be a much, much more interesting and appealing movie. And so I said, well, then in that case, what I need to do is get the hell out to L.A. and uh, where they tell me all these movies are made and uh, and tell some people about this and then get it squared away and they'll give me a job and pay me lots of money and I'll become rich and famous and and I'll make a big uh, a big dent in how war movies are made. Well, uh, it didn't quite work out that way. Um, I I think I had I had one credit card which was like the twenty five hundred dollar limit or something and and I I just got on a plane and I came to L A and I found a place to stay actually with one of my buddies from Vietnam who lived in L A. and uh, I started trying to figure out. You know, how does a movie business work? Who are the movers and the shakers? Who are the colonels here? Who are the generals here? Who are the, the first sergeants here? And I began to try to study this, and I would, I would just sneak onto, onto movie lots at Warner's and Culver City and that sort of thing and, and, uh, and try to observe. And, of course, you know, they'd, they'd quickly find out that I was uh, not supposed to be there, and they'd throw me off the lot. The good, the good news was that most of the guys that threw me off the lot, the security guys were former military and they gave me a break. Um, but, but I was really, it took me about a year and, and I was learning some things. I was learning to talk to people. I was learning about writers. I was learning about producers. I was learning about directors and, and all that sort of, you know, how the movie business works, how the, what the hierarchy is. And, uh, and, and really I was not having any luck getting anybody to listen to me. It was like the, the, the inventor who, who's convinced he has a better mousetrap, but he can't get anybody to experiment with his mousetrap um, and, and, and prove that it's, it's a better deal. And that, that's kind of the situation I was in. I, I talked a great game, but I didn't have anything to show, anything to prove except a theory. And, uh, you know, theories are uh, kind of like uh, uh, anuses. You know, everybody's got one and they all stink. But... Uh, but there I was, and, and I was about to give it up. I'd been out there about a year, and I finally was about to say, okay, look, uh, I'll, I'll just go be a defense contractor, cubicle rat or something, because I'm, I'm out of money, I'm out of luck, I'm, and nothing's going on. So I was feeling pretty sorry for myself. 
but I had learned I had learned to read uh, the trade papers, uh, uh, Hollywood Reporter, and uh, and that sort of uh, Daily Variety, that sort of thing. About the time I was eight or nine months into this quest, completely frustrated, I noticed a little uh, piece in uh, I think it was Army Archard's column in the Hollywood Reporter that said a uh, heretofore little-known writer-director by the name of Oliver Stone is going to do a Vietnam movie based on his own personal experience as a combat infantryman in Vietnam. And I said, oh, God, how, how do I get to this guy? Because if I can get to this guy and explain my theory of how to prepare actors to adequately and, and properly and convincingly, credibly uh, portray combat soldiers, He'll get it. Nobody else has so far, but he will. And so through, uh, through some machinations that I, I can't really tell you about because the, uh, the uh, uh, statute of limitations may not have run out yet, through a, I, I managed to get a quick five-minute talk with Oliver Stone. Mm-hmm. And I went into my, uh, my best two-minute drill, and I explained everything that I believed was wrong with military movies, war movies that we'd seen, uh, and how to fix it, uh, kind of a, a full immersion thing. In other words, we were trained how to be soldiers in combat, so let's train actors the same way and let them experience that and assimilate that and internalize that, and it will affect their performances, and we'll have something that's really, really just, just reeks of authenticity. Mm-hmm. And as I predicted, he bought it, and he gave me... Um, 33 young actors, uh, many of whom were totally unknown at the point at that point, like Johnny Depp, uh, Forrest Whitaker, uh, Charlie Sheen, Willem Dafoe, John Bar- uh, Tom Berenger. And, uh, and that was, and I took them into the jungles of the Philippines for three weeks and made them live as we lived as grunts in Vietnam. And in uh, the upshot of all of that, uh, was the birth of Warriors Incorporated. Uh, once, once we brought that little $5 million film home, and, and we didn't have a penny more, believe me, uh, we were manufacturing half the stuff that we were using. Uh, right. But once we brought it home, uh, lo and behold, it became a stupendous hit. Um, it won uh, four Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Best uh, Director for Oliver. That was the birth of Warriors Incorporated. At that point, Everybody who wouldn't listen to me when I was out trying to sell this idea uh, now wanted me to do everything, nice. Uh, nice. To, to turn everything into the platoon gold. And, uh, you know, I began to hire people and I began to work on uh, other other films. And, uh, and, and it's been onward and upward for the last 30, 35 years. You've worked with Oliver Stone a few times. What does he like to work with? Well, he's a visionary filmmaker. Uh, look, he and I are, are political uh, opposites. And, and the good thing is we know that and we respect that and we leave it alone. But, but he, he can be a bear to work with. He's extremely focused. Mm-hmm. And you don't last long with Oliver if you don't deliver on time, right now, and the way he wants it. Uh, and he's, he's not a great communicator. Um, much, much of his vision is so buried in his imagination and his mind that sometimes it's very hard for him to uh to explain himself and to, and to kind of tell you what he wants to do uh the good news in my case was that i know i know him so well 
that I can read between the lines. I can, I can see behind his eyeballs mm-hmm. and I kind of know what he wants. So I, I end up interpreting what he wants for, for some of the other uh, crew dogs that are, that are around him. He's, he's a difficult uh, guy to work around, but, but he is a visionary filmmaker, and, and he does it right, and he does it well. He, he's both uh, a good, solid writer, storyteller, and a good cinematographer or a, cine- a filmmaker. Is part of your services that you get a film role automatically, or do you have to audition, or do they write you a role? Uh, all, all of the above, okay. uh, Derek. What, what happens is sometimes I'll spot a role that I'll say, oh, God, that's perfect. I can do that. And I can really do it well. I can do it better than any actor because it's just right in my wheelhouse. It's me. And so I'll campaign for it. And mostly that's successful um, because they, they see me doing that role while I'm training the actors. And, and they say, oh, yeah, that's, that's what we want, that guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes they'll come to me and say, look, um, we really want you to do this role because you're just perfect for it. And, and then sometimes, um, you know, I'll have to go down and read like any other uh, anxious actor that, that wants a role. Um, so it happens all kinds of ways. It just depends. Okay, Duval Nation, we're going to go ahead and take a brief break. This will give you a chance to enjoy a cold drink, stand up, stretch, Enjoy some quality commercials for two minutes. We'll be right back with the second half of this epic episode very, very soon. It's time for an ad! Hi folks, I'm Tyler Armentrout. I'm Christopher Wheaton. I'm Zach Meck. And I'm Jerry Nash. And we're the History, History Boys. Boys. And we're kicking your door down with a Bluetooth speaker and an 18-pack of beer. Ready to start party. It's my favorite history podcast on all the internet, not just because I'm on it, but because I listen to every episode full blast in my house drives my wife up the wall. This is the History Podcast for all you cool kids that sat in the back of the classroom. That's right. We are a comedy history podcast or a history comedy podcast. Podcast, any which way you look at it. We are the History Boys. That is spelled B-O-I-Z for those counting. And we are found anywhere you find your podcasts. Love you, bye. Janae Sergio, arriving. Hello, everyone. This is Janae Sergio, life coach, combat veteran, and best-selling author. I invite you to purchase my new book, Perfectly Flawed, A Veteran's Journey from Homeless to Hero. In these pages, you will learn about the lowest struggles of my life to the absolute triumphs that have made me the strong woman I am today. Follow along as I talk about homelessness, my naval role in Operation Enduring Freedom, navigating insurmountable odds, and how I dealt with and overcame them. You can find Perfectly Flawed on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. Teachers. Do you ever have these feelings or have been told these things? Do you want Kleenex for your classroom? Maybe you should think about buying your own with your own money. You get the summer off, you can have a second job. Do you really need a pay raise? Oh, do you need to use the restroom? Maybe you can do that in the three minutes while students are changing classes. Boy, sure hope your room doesn't descend into Lord of the Flies in that time. Oh, things are going pretty good for one. Surprise! Budget cuts! Well, you're in luck because we've got a book just for you. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Kinder, educator, speaker, and author of Untold Teaching Truths. 
I invite you to purchase my book and join this journey as we talk about the wild world of public education. Part memoir, part strategy. It is available on BookBaby, Amazon, or wherever books are sold. Teach on Warriors. We've got this. Hello there, Giggle Water Gang. I'm Kina, the host of the boozy and delightfully foul-mouthed comedy podcast, Historical AF. I'm a nerdy public historian that is joined by a special guest each week to deliver funny, weird, spooky, and morbid historical nuggets you never knew you needed in your ear holes. Past topics have included the magical manhood of Russia's mad monk Rasputin, my hot take the aliens did not build the pyramids, Serial killers that both my parents happened to meet as children. Listen, I know what you're thinking. Kina, how do you even exist right now? Also, who was it? All right, I'll tell you. Spoiler alert, it was Sean Wayne Gacy and Mark Allen Smith. Anywho, we can't forget the spooky. I've covered topics ranging from the ghost of Anne Boleyn to the night marchers in Hawaii. Don't look at them, guys. If you do, you have to strip naked and you have to lay on the dirt. Dim's the rules. You can listen and subscribe to Historical AF wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Historical AF Pod. And finally, you can check out the website for links to listen, sources, because citing is sexy, photos, and more at historicalafpodcast.com. Okay, bye! Welcome back to the Derek Duvall Show. Duval Nation, dig in and enjoy the conclusion of our extraordinary interview with Hollywood military technical advisor, Captain Dale Dye. Can you take us through the basics of what kind of boot camp you put the actors through? Look, what I, what I do depends on entirely on what the story, the script demands. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've done everything from ancient uh, times like Alexander, where we had to go and study the ancient Greek way of war. And we've gone all the way into the 25th, 26th century and done Starship Troopers. So uh, I, I believe one thing. I think the spirit of the warrior. The way of the warrior is constant. It was as constant with um, with a hoplite in uh, in Alexander's phalanx as it was, or as it will be in uh, uh, you know the space force when it finally gets up uh, in into space. So I use that as a common denominator. That's that's what drives it. I want people to understand not just mentally, but viscerally. Uh, in I, I want them not only to understand the spirit of a warrior in their head, but also in their heart and in their guts. Uh, and that takes immersion. That that takes, you have to experience that. So basically break them down and build them back up? Yeah, yeah, I do that. You know, and to get to that point, uh, look, actors for the most part are very, very self-centered. That's perfectly <laughs> understandable. Uh, their, their product they're selling is them, their body, their intellect, their talent, their ability. Uh, so everything is me, me, me. Well, that's the antithesis of the way it is in the military. It's the mission first and yourself second. So that's a very difficult thing to to teach. Uh, you can talk about it, but you need to experience it so that you can assimilate it, so that you can use it and you can understand it. And in order to get actors, for the most part, to that level, you need to reduce them to the lowest common denominator. That's something that Anybody who's been through any military uh, basic training can understand. You have to be convinced that you don't count. You know, it's a matter of mind over matter. The service doesn't mind and you don't matter. And you have to, you have to go at it that way. 
So I, I look at them as sponges. And so they come to me full of liquid from their life experience, which is all about themselves. So in training them, I squeeze that sponge until all that crapola goes away, until it's gone. And now I've got a dry sponge. And what I can do then is pour all of that experience that I'm trying to get them to understand and assimilate onto that dry sponge until it swells and becomes usable, Mm -hmm. becomes a realistic, believable tool. And that's essentially, you know, in broad strokes, that's how it works. Have you ever had an actor just completely resist and quit? No. And that's a, that's, that's a function of leadership. They, they have to understand why you're doing this. And they have to understand the reason for doing this. And so every evening during training, and training can last anywhere from five days to three weeks. It depends on the schedule. It depends on what's necessary to support the script and the story and that sort of thing. But every day, just before evening chow, and they don't get a full night's sleep. They're going to they're gonna be up and working that night. But every day I have a thing called stand down. And stand down is a time when they can talk to me, when they can ask me any question. Nothing is off limits. And it's during those stand downs that I explain to them why they're doing this why it's important that they do this, why it's not just another movie role, why what they're doing, if we do it right, is revelatory. It it opens, it shines a light on the servants' sacrifice of men and women throughout the ages who've worn the uniform and have been willing to go and risk their lives for this nation and for what it stands for. And, And once you get them to thinking on that level, then whatever you do to them, and I guess that's whatever you do with them rings true. It, ring, it rings necessary. It rings as an experience, as an insight. And when you get them to understand that, they're not, they're not going anywhere. They want that experience. Okay, so this next question has been very popular. And thankfully, I've had the chance to ask it many, many times. The question is this. What is it like to meet Steven Spielberg? Well, uh, in my case, uh, I was obviously as starstruck as anybody else. Um, mm-hmm. He called me in to meet him, and we wanted to talk about a little film called uh, Saving Private Ryan. He had been a fan. I, I had no idea that this was the case, mm-hmm. but he'd been a fan of Platoon, and he'd seen my performance as the company commander, Captain Harris, in Platoon. And he was particularly uh, enthralled with my jargon speak on the radio. And he absolutely loved it. And he was, he was full of praise about that sort of thing. And, of course, I was shocked that I was sitting there across from Steven Spielberg with Tom Hanks in attendance and some other people. But he was very, uh, very complimentary. Um, and, and, you know, he was very honest. He said, look, I'm, some people call me a hard taskmaster. Um, I, I really demand top-notch performance. But he said, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm aware of the fact that filmmaking is a synergistic effort and, and I need people around me that I can trust, uh, that, that can see my vision and can help me get there uh, without constant minutia instruction. And I said, well, that's me. I said, that's called, in the military, I said, that's called mission type orders. And I said, I get that. And I'd be delighted if, if you'd let me have a shot at this. And he did. Um, so he was, he was a, a very interesting guy and and lord knows a consummate filmmaker i mean working at his elbow 
I learned more about the camera and the movement and why it moves and where it moves and 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 lenses and uh, and and working to camera than than I had ever imagined. Uh, so it was it was a it was an education and an honor. I try not to use the word genius as I think it gets thrown around a bit too liberally these days. But he is one hundred and fifty percent a genius filmmaker. So, what was it like to be a part of the production of Saving Private Ryan? Would you say Saving Private Ryan was the hardest production you've been a part of, or would it be Band of Brothers? Yeah, it had to be Band of Brothers. But but Ryan was was a really unique experience. I mean, um, uh, Spielberg let me do it my way, and uh, and and I mean, what an extraordinary thing when when we staged that Omaha Beach sequence. Um, mm-hmm. We had, I think, a thousand men, seven ships at sea, twelve or fourteen armored vehicles, and it all had to go at once. Mm-hmm. And I remember t- saying to the to the crews, I said, "Listen, once we launch this, I said they're all loaded with ammunition, so nobody's going to stop in the middle to you know because his weapon is out of ammo." I said they're going to roll, and I said uh, we can yell cut all day long, but the only way they're going to stop is when they flat run out of ammunition <laughs> or they're pinned down or they're and I said, so um, let's let's make sure that we've got all the film and all the cameras that Stephen wants. But Lord knows, when we say go, it's going to go. And uh, and and I was standing at the time we I, I actually gave the order to go because I was on the radio to the to the troops. Um, I was standing up on a on a cliffside uh, overlooking this uh, Curaclough Beach, which is in southeast uh, Ireland, County Wexford, uh, which we had set up to look like uh normandy yeah normandy um once once i had uh once i gave that i mean turning around and looking at all that happened i mean i got my dwight david eisenhower fix that day it was it was amazing Uh, and uh you know omaha beach um i wasn't there but i've i've seen what very very few snippets of film there are available from it and i think we did it very well I had the first man to set foot on Omaha Beach on my show, and not only was he able to survive Omaha Beach intact, but he said the production of Private Ryan, he said, was absolutely accurate. Yeah, and you know, that's that's the reason I want to do these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I talk to those gentlemen myself a lot, um, and they have they want to get, all want to get a hold of me because, you know, I'm, I'm the guy with access to filmmaking, and... Uh, and and to hear them say, and I've heard this a number of times, and I'm very proud of it, to hear them say, you know, uh, Dale, you got it right. Mm-hmm. That I remember so many of those sequences, ex- exactly the things that happened to me. I mean, that's the Academy Award to me. Uh, that's why I do what I do. That being said, how were you approached to participate in Band of Brothers? Well, once again, it was uh, it was Steven uh, Spielberg and Tom Hanks who had you know had that experience with me, and they said, "Well, this is going to be a mini series. You know, we're going to have ten episodes here, and so what do you need? How do, how can you take all these disparate actors? So many of them, and I mean, I only had eight of them, I think, for Band before uh, Saving Private Ryan, and and then uh, the the big bunches of extras, but." Uh, they said, you know, you're going to have up uh, 30, 40, uh, 52, I think is the number I ended up with. Um, and and you really, they've got to stay in character the whole time. And I said, okay, I need three weeks. And everybody grumbled and looked around and they said, do you? I said, yes, I do. And I need full isolation. 
and let me run it like they were young recruits going into the paratroopers in 1940-41. And I said, if you'll let me set it up that way and you let me run it that way and you let me keep them in it, uh, I'll produce the guys that are in um, Stephen Ambrose's book. Believe me, I will. And they gave me that latitude and they gave me that opportunity. And it was probably the most rewarding experience I had or have ever had um, mm-hmm. in, in training actors for, uh, for a film. Band of Brothers is a miniseries I consider to be, bar none, the greatest TV miniseries of all time. In my eyes, there truly is no equal. We got close with the Pacific, but we made some, we made some storytelling mistakes in the Pacific, I think. You know, every Marine you talk to, every Marine veteran says, yeah, the Pacific is exactly the way it was. And they were two different wars in the Pacific and in the European theater of operation. But I share your admiration for, uh, for Band of Brothers, even though I'm an insider. I am very fortunate to have an actual home cinema in my house. And one of the first things I show folks who want to come over and hear the surround sound experience is I play the second episode of Band of Brothers about the drop over Normandy and the anti-aircraft fire they took. Yeah, and, and, and I knew we really had a tiger by the tail. About the time we were in episode two, I said, this is going to be monumental. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I kept everybody from that cast, most of whom were British, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, I kept everybody in that cast always in character for the entire nine months it took us to do that. I didn't care what their actor name was. They were always their character name. Right. And they were addressed by their rank, and they did that with each other. So they were in it the whole way through. One of the notable highlights in your career, and for one you received considerable positive reviews for, was your portrayal of the mythical and legendary Colonel Robert Sink. What kind of research and prep work did you do prior to taking the role? Well, that was interesting. I, I mean, I really wanted to do Sink because he, he, the character just spoke to me. And I had done some research about him. Uh, found out who he was. He had kind of a sad post-war story. In fact, he was a suicide. But in order to to get it done, I mean, he was from North Carolina. And uh, and so I got in contact with his family and his daughter um, was so kind. They sent me some speeches that he'd made, uh, tapes of speeches that he'd made. And I was able to get that. And, and I would walk around listening to that North Carolina drawl that he typically had. And I would uh, I would practice it so that I could I could bring it to the character. And once everybody heard it, they said, "Oh, that's him. That's it, absolutely." And I turned my mustache down to look like him. And <laughs> and, uh, and so I I researched that guy in the physicalities and in the voice and the intonation and that sort of thing extensively. But but what drew me to the character was I felt I knew him. And I, and I'm I guess I'm putting myself in tall cotton here, but I think there was. There was a lot of Colonel Sink in me on my active duty time as a leader and that sort of thing. And I understood the guy and I knew how he would act and and how he would behave when he would get into a certain situation. So when the script would call for me to do something, I mean, I knew immediately as as a leader what Colonel Sink would have done. And that's what I did. And and everybody seemed to think a great deal of it. A friend of mine who follows my show is a massive fan of Band of Brothers and is quite versed in its production. He told me to ask you about a funny story involving David Schwimmer during the training for the show and something involving you discovering he had contraband on his person. If you if you know the story, would you care to tell it? 
Sure. Well, there was a couple of things about Schwimmer. I mean, he was only the, the really the only name that we had. Uh, David Schwimmer was uh, in Friends, and so he was well-known to American audiences, uh, American television audiences. And I wasn't sure how he was going to fit in with these relatively unknowns that I was shaping and so on and so forth. But he was really good. He took to the training and, and he didn't, you know, didn't want any sort of uh, special treatment or any of that sort of thing. And he went through everything. What happened was that uh, we were doing pre-jump training and I had the guys going off uh, doing parachute landing falls into a sand pit from about an eight foot platform. And, uh, and he hurt his knee. And so uh, I had to send him to the rear to have that, that knee evaluated and that sort of thing. And I thought, well, I'll never see him again. You know, that, that, that's it. Uh, the, the, the producers will take him out of training and, and he'll miss our jump week up at Bryce Norton, RAF, uh, the RAF's number one parachute school. And so I, I kind of had written him off. But the day before we uh, were to go to Bryce Norton to the parachute school, um, he showed up. And his knee was braced, and he said, sir, I'm going. And I said, well, you, you cleared by the doctor? He said, absolutely, I'm cleared by the doctor. And what I didn't notice was he had taken his pack, uh, his 1944 model uh, haversack. He'd taken that to the rear with him. And I, I just figured it was, you know, change of skivvies and that sort of thing. What he had done, because I had, my rules were no candy, no outside chow, you eat what I put in front of you in the mess hall twice a day. And that's what you eat and you drink water and that's what you do. It's, and I'm physically training you, so don't, don't mess around with this. Well, when Schwimmer came back, he made himself the hero of the entire unit. Unbeknownst to me until I found it later, uh, he had brought back every kind of candy you could think of. M&Ms and Tootsie Rolls and all of the pogey bait nonsense that I absolutely wouldn't let them eat. He had a haversack full of it, and he was distributing it all over the barracks. And I didn't know anything about it until one of my squad leaders, one of my sergeants said, sir, where the hell did they get that bag of M&Ms? And I said, what bag of M&Ms? And, of course, I did a shakedown in the barracks, and it was all Schwimmer. He had a, he had a footlocker full of this stuff. How did Schwimmer react when you found his secret stash? Oh, I think, I think he knew he was screwed. And so uh, he, what he ended up with was extra guard duty. So he lost some sleep over it. I put him on uh, sentry rounds for about two days. What was it like to collaborate with the actual veterans of Easy Company? Well, that was a delight, part of the delight of the whole thing. I mean, I had researched extensively what sort of training uh, paratroopers in, in World War II went through. And I had designed my training syllabus to reflect that for the most part. And it was extraordinary. They, the, the veterans really didn't get to see me in training. I kept these guys strictly isolated at a, at a former British Army post called uh, Longmore, which was across from uh, the home of the uh, Aldershot, the home of the British Army. I kept them isolated. So uh, we didn't really have any of the veterans there with us. But the guys who were playing the characters uh, had been in contact prior to their training regimen uh, with some of them, like Bill Garner and Babe uh, Heffron. And, and uh, certainly Damian Lewis had talked to... Uh, to Dick Winters, I, I was kind of anxious to see what was going to happen. And about two weeks into, as we began filming, some of those veterans showed up on the set. They'd been invited over by HBO and, and the production entity. And, and I got to meet them and talk to them. And, and 
once again, I got, I got a little Oscar right there. You know, they took a look at me and they said, damn, they look just like we did when we were 19 and 20. And I said, yeah, I hope so. That's what we're trying to do. And they were just magic. I mean, they, they were so supportive. They said, you, you have produced easy company the way we were. And I said, well, there you go. I, whatever else happens, that one will go down in my memory book. They say familiarity breaks down discipline, but I have to ask if you ever got to know any of the actors from Band of Brothers after the production was finished. Well, there were a few beer busts and uh, celebratory things that I attended, mm-hmm. but I attended them as a commanding officer, and that's the way it went. And to this day, they still all call me Skipper or, or Captain Die. <laughs> and even, you know, we, we have about once a year, we have a, a, a cast get-together, and uh, and I'm still Captain Die. I'm still the Skipper. I'm still, that's uh, just the way it is with those guys. So that never broke down. That said, I kept them really into it. I kept emphasizing to them that this is important, guys. This is not a joke. This is not a job. This is something that's going to live live in the annals of, of filmmaking. And, and I think they knew that relationship between them and me uh, had to maintain on that level, and it did, and it still does. Okay, so I told my listeners you were coming on the show, and I had a great many people recognize who you were and wrote in some absolutely fun questions. Now, they've ranged anywhere from brilliant to completely worthless, and I've chosen a few of the intelligent ones. So if it's okay, I'm just go ahead and go ask you a few of them. First question comes from uh, this one fan. What are your favorite memories working on Under Siege? Well, um, Under Siege was, uh, was kind of a, an interesting one. I, one of the ones in which I played a very senior officer. I played an admiral in the Navy, uh, a SEAL admiral. And Stephen Scull's character was, uh, supposedly I had some sort of influence on him. So what a lot of the work on Under Siege for me was sitting around a big conference table, a big polished conference table with some military people and some or actors playing military people and, and some uh, actors playing politicians. And I was able to, uh, the fun part was the disdain I would consistently show for politicians. Um, <laughs> and I got a great kick out of that and the director liked it. Um, but working with Stephen was interesting. Unfortunately, I didn't get a lot of time with him on screen. Hmm. I was mostly on screen talking about him, um, but it was fun. I was I was glad to do it. I mean, I'm I'm the most typecast guy in Hollywood, obviously. Yeah. So you know, I was a senior senior white headed admiral and and <laughs> and that kind of guy. The next fan question is: Do you have any good stories working on Michael Mann's The Last of the Mohicans? Yeah, a bunch of them. In Last of the Mohicans, I mean, Michael Mann's another director I like a lot. But he's he's a detail man. He wanted everything to be exactly as it was. And he went to the extent of sending me to London prior to the production to go to the Imperial War Museum and study the British 1857 Manual of Arms with the Brown Vest Musket. And so I was able to actually page through those old books and make notes and that sort of thing. And then I brought that back and we went to uh, North Carolina and where we were filming. And I got those troops, and they became the 35th Regiment of Foot British colonial troops in, in the colonies. So um, I was constantly wanting them to learn to do the drill of advancing and firing with the brown best musket. And so you'd, you'd have three ranks. They would come forward. The first rank would fire and then take a knee and reload the muzzle-loading brown best, and the second rank would walk through them 
fire and kneel, and then the third rank would come forward. And that was a very complicated thing because you get, there's 13 counts to the British Army way of loading the brown bess. And, and you had them performing that 13 count, standing behind the firing line and then advancing to become the firing line and so on. So the, in order to see how that would look on camera, I would consistently get out in front of, because we, were, we weren't firing any ball ammunition, it was just black powder. Um, and so I would consistently go forward of the advancing line to see how it would look and to, and to correct it and to make the line look exactly like well-drilled, well-trained British soldiers. And, and I would let them fire in my direction. And of course, I would get a few powder burns on my, on my T-shirt and that sort of thing. <laughs> but one day, and I, they, I, I should have known this was going to happen. I kept getting them to do it faster and faster and faster. And finally, uh, one of them forgot to take his ramrod out of uh, the musket after he'd reloaded. Ooh. And he advanced up forward, went to full cock and fired the weapon. And that, that ramrod came right by my head and stuck in an old oak tree. Lucky and I said, OK, we'll secure this for now and we'll go back <laughs> to the reloading drill. So uh, and there were all kinds of things like that. There, there were uh, there were great, great experiences on Last of the Mohicans. Man, I watched Last of the Mohicans recently, and damn, does it hold up well. Anyway, uh, next fan question. What about voiceover work do you enjoy? Uh, which game has been your favorite to do? Well, yeah, I love it. I have a kind of a unique voice, and I guess you can tell. I have an ability to say military jargon in a convincing way that most <laughs> actors who haven't been in the military can't do. I get a lot of requests to come in and, and do that sort of background walla and that sort of thing for video games and sometimes for movies. I think probably the, the, the one I enjoyed most was I did several iterations of uh, Medal of Honor, which was, uh, which is a great game. And it, it, it came out in three or four versions and I was able to, to do the voices in, in most of them. And, and I think uh, one of the things I liked about Medal of Honor is the designers and the uh, producers really wanted to get it right. They didn't want it to be just another uh, first-person shooter enemy doesn't have a say and his head explodes in a pink mist. They, they were over that. They wanted this to be something that was really special and, and as close to a simulator combat experience as they could make. And, and part of that was the the voiceover work that I did, the commands that I gave and that sort of thing. And so uh, it was it was great to be part of a team of producers, scientists, designers, artists who were all putting together something that was that was really designed to be as educational as it was to be entertaining. Now this next fan question is one that I was particularly interested in. Did you know Arlie Ermey? Yes, I knew him very well, and, and God bless him. He was one of the most supportive guys when I first started all of this. Uh, of course, we were both Marines, and, and that, <laughs> that was an automatic connection. But I'd worked with Lee a number of times, and, uh, and I really respected what he did, and I respected him as a man, as a performer, and as a Marine. And we, unfortunately, our schedules were so busy, we didn't get a lot of leisure time together. But, but the time I, I did get with him, it was like old home week. I remember we were doing a film called uh, uh, Rough Riders. And, uh, and, and that was a, a terrific piece with Sam Elliott and, and, uh, and several other people directed by John Milius. It was a made-for-TV movie. And I played, uh, Tom Berenger played uh, uh, Teddy Roosevelt. And I played General Leonard Wood, who was Roosevelt's direct boss. 
And also within the film was uh, Lee Ermey between takes. I mean, we would literally sit there between Lee Ermey and me and Brian Keith, who was also a Marine in World War II, and we would just tell these war stories. And I got as close to him then, I think, as, as I ever was. And, and I was devastated when we lost him. It was a terrible shame. Okay, this last question comes from a fellow Marine. What do you think the VA could be doing better to help combat veterans returning from Afghanistan? Well, the first thing uh, the VA needs to do is get their house in order. Uh, I mean, they, they have got to, to um, digitize those records, and they've got to start sharing those records. And they've got to stop being individual entities and be an actual administration and take orders from the top, from a single leader. There's too much individual difference in, in one VA to the other VA and so on and so forth. That's one thing they've got to do. They've got to modernize themselves. Uh, I think they are doing a good job in hiring veterans to be uh, administrators in the mm-hmm. VA. Uh, there's a huge push for that. I think, I think that's very well. Um, one thing I don't like and I have never liked is the, uh, the whole PTSD, poor me, crying the poor ass uh, institute. And it's become the VA has gotten to the point where they are facilitating that. And I don't like it. Um, I don't, I don't think, you know, there's no, there's no disorder to post-traumatic stress. Everybody who's, who's had a trauma experiences a certain amount of post-traumatic stress. And, and there should be more emphasis on helping with it rather than just paying for it. And that's what the VA has done badly, I think. Now, I was delighted to learn that you are quite an accomplished writer. Code word Geronimo seems like a very original idea. I hear good things about it. And if my facts are correct, you wrote it with your wife. Is that right? Thank you. I, I have, I've started a publishing company. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I, 10 years ago, I guess, I've started a publishing company called Warriors Publishing Group, and we publish novels uh, by veterans. And mm-hmm. my wife uh, is, is, uh, helps me run it, and, and she, in fact, she does run it. <laughs> and uh, and she's, a, she's a brilliant writer herself. What does she have a PhD in? Yeah, she's a, she's a PhD art, uh, anthropologist. And so we, uh, we have published some great stuff, some really good stuff, uh, much above and beyond mine. Um, but I've got 13 novels out there now, and the most recent one was just uh, released in November, uh, and it's a Korean War story called uh, Korean Odyssey. And I hope your hope your uh, listeners get a chance to take a look at that and some of the other books. Absolutely. They're all available on uh, Warriors Publishing Group, or they're available on Amazon if you just go to Dale Dye Author. And I really like writing. I mean, I've always loved it. Um, but it, it, it appeals to the, you know, the bog Irish storyteller in me. And, uh, and I write well. Uh, these aren't amateur hour. These are well-published books and very well-received and very well-reviewed. So uh, I, get, I get a kick out of it. Uh, in fact, I'm going to start. Uh, there's a series uh, that I've run uh, with, a, with a former Marine by the name of Shake Davis. It kind of goes along the uh, Lee Child, Jack Reacher um, mm-hmm. uh, milieu. And... And I love writing those things. So um, if, you're, if your listeners get a chance to go to Warriors Publishing Group and look at the books, especially the new one, uh, I think they'll, uh, they'll enjoy it. If they, if, they, if they like your podcast, they'll probably like my books. <laughs> so uh, that being said, what does the future look like for Captain Dale Dye? You know, I don't know. We, we've just made the big PCS permanent change of station move from L.A. 
uh, to Texas. And I'm, I'm just enjoying the hell out of it. The great people in Texas. And we're in central Texas in the hill country. And, and I just love it. Did you buy a ranch or? Beautiful old house with about seven acres um, built in 1915. And we've promptly turned it into the Imperial War Museum. And uh, it, it's just a delight. And I'm not sure what I'm going to do. I mean, I just finished nine months overseas in the UK uh, working on, a, on the, tr- the, the third part of the World War II trilogy, uh, Band of Brothers, the Pacific, and now Whoa. This... So are you, are you doing like the Battle of Britain or something like that? Uh, no. It's, oh. it's about the air campaign of the 8th Air Force. Oh, the bombing runs over Germany. Yeah. And um, I can't tell you much more about it. So, uh, you know, that was really tough on me. And so at my age, I'm thinking maybe... You know, maybe I'll sit in the rear and, and organize my troops and send them out to do battle. But uh, but I'm not sure how much more I'm going to do in the movie business. Uh, I'm certainly going to write more books. I've got at least two in mind and one started already. And and I'm here to help people. I mean, I still hear from young actors and that sort of thing who want to know this, that, or the other thing about a role they're going to do. And I'm always happy to answer those questions. But, but physically, how much more am I going to do on the set? How many more training evolutions am I going to do? I just don't know. Well, I think that's more than fair. Okay, then. I end my interviews with my favorite question. And the question is this. If the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, what would be the one thing you want to say to the people of Earth? I would say, people of Earth, take a look at some of the movies I've done. <laughs> and if nothing else... What I want you to understand is that there are people here on this earth that are willing to serve and to sacrifice and to write a check to the United States of America for any amount up to and including their lives. And that's really special. So when you get to looking around at homo sapiens, when you get to looking around at men and women of this earth, understand that they are deeply deeply wedded to the human experience and that if you just give them a minute or two they're fine folks captain this has been indeed probably one of the greatest honors of me doing this show uh from an old sailor to an old marine thank you for doing what you do and doing what you have done Uh, i want to wish you nothing but the absolute best for your possible retirement and quite frankly the best for your future well, thank you, Derek. It's, it's been a pleasure to, uh, to spend some time with you. It's always, uh, you know, it's good to look back and um, sometimes and, and just hope that you've made a difference, and I hope I have. Thank you again, Captain. And just like that, Devol Nation, we come to the end of Episode 65. I want to thank the incomparable Captain Dale Dye for being so absolutely gracious with his time. You can go to his INDB or Wikipedia page and look for the many films he has worked on and starred in. Folks, this one, <laughs> man, this was definitely for the books. One of my absolute favorite episodes. This one absolutely is. We still have so much incredible content coming to you very soon. I cannot wait for you to hear it. I also want to turn your attention to our new store. We have joined up with T Public to bring you Derek Duvall show-themed merchandise. You can find mugs, magnets, stickers on there, so be sure to check those out, plus a personally curated collection of t-shirts chosen by Mrs. Duvall and myself. So make sure you go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com, 
Look on the left side of the page for merch, and there's a link that'll take you right to our Tee Public store. On behalf of the entire team here at the Derek Duvall Show, I want to say to each and every one of you listening, be safe, be well, and have a fantastic 4th of July. Please don't like firecrackers in your hand, and please keep your pets indoors. No star, God bless, and see you next time. Planet Earth. This has been a recording of the Derek Duvall Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com, to explore past episodes and find links to purchase merchandise. Please subscribe to our social media channels on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Derek Duvall Show.